Welcome to episode 5 of Adventures in VHS, the movie podcast dedicated to the lost format of VHS, where I take a look back at one of the tapes that once adorned the shelves of my local rental store in the 1980s. This podcast allows me to get all nostalgic for the films and the format that I grew up with, but it also supports the upcoming Adventures in VHS book, which is a personal journey back to a simpler time where the summer holidays were less about family picnics and adventure playgrounds and more about sex comedies and exploding heads. If it's the first time you've listened to the show, you can expect to hear me talk about the history of one particular film from the 1980s. Uh, So I'll be taking a look at the wonderful cover art, the trailers and more from its original UK VHS release before offering up a review of the movie itself. From time to time, I also get to talk to someone who can offer their own unique insight into the home video era, what it means to them. So in the past, I've been lucky enough to speak to Creepazoid's director, David Dakota, uh, Troma founder, Lloyd Kaufman. And in the last episode, I spoke to the director of a brand new VHS documentary called Rewind This, uh, Mr. Josh Johnson. Now, I'll start by saying that for the next episode, I do have another very special movie director lined up for, from one particular film that I'm going to be covering. 
however, he is currently on set filming something else, um, and so we've had to postpone things a couple of weeks, so, um, so there won't actually be an interview at this show, but there'll definitely be one for the next show. Um, however, for this show, I do have something else which I'm hoping you'll really enjoy. Uh, in the last episode, I asked listeners to contact me with their personal early VHS memories as part of a competition. The winner would get their hands on a Frightfest goodie bag from this year's festival that's packed with books and DVDs and, and a bunch of other stuff. And I also said I'd throw in a mystery VHS tape just to sweeten the deal a little bit and kind of make it more relevant to the show if I'm being honest um, so I'm delighted to say uh, I was overwhelmed with responses way more than I thought I was going to get uh, which means I've either tapped into something here and you're all as gooey about home video as, as I am or you really really want this bag I'm not sure um, I'm hoping it's the former and not the latter but either way I'm, I'm so so pleased that so many of you got in touch now before I say how it's going to work, I do have a little disclaimer. 16 people shared their VHS memories with me, and uh, I wanted to include each and every one of them in the show. But I didn't just want to wait till the end of the show and read out all 16 of them. Uh, I wanted to kind of break them up and let them run throughout the show. Uh, so that's what I've done. I've broken them into groups of three, and I'll be reading them out in a Simon Bates style uh, at different points throughout the show. Um, I should also say as emphatically as I possibly can at this stage that I'm so unbelievably touched by all the, the kind words that every single one of the VHS Memories entrants had to say about this podcast, um, how much they've been enjoying it, how much they look forward to it um, and, and how much they can't wait for the book to come out. Seriously, I can't tell you how much it means for me to hear that and uh, though you may not realise it, all those wonderful kind words may actually even help me convince uh, someone to publish this this book when it's done. So, you know, a huge, huge, huge thanks to all of you. I was, you know, choked up reading some of the things that you sent over, so that was fantastic. Uh, that said, and I hope you all don't mind, but I have decided that with so many entrants uh, for the competition, it would be best if I just kept to reading out your actual memories. Uh, partially because of time constraints uh, but also I figured reading out all those compliments on air might make me sound a little self-obsessed and smug so I, I hope you don't mind but I'll keep those comments in a box under my bed to show to my mum next time she comes around to tell me that I'm a failure um, and and yeah in in the meantime you'll hear those those 15 individual VHS memories in no particular order and then at the end of the show I'll unveil the final 16th one which will be the winner um, and I will ask that person to get in touch with their address details. Um, so a slightly different structure to the show this week um, along with the main movie which is Dusan Makayev's 1985 film The Coca-Cola Kid. Uh, there will be contributions from you, the VHS, the uh, Adventures in VHS listeners, um, with your individual VHS memories. Uh, but of course, there will be all the usual movie detail, uh, review, look at the cover, the trailers, and everything else, uh, which leads me on to another announcement. Um, in response to some of the other feedback that I've had from, for the show, I'm delighted to announce uh, a new way to interact with its content. Uh, due to the 
the very confusing popularity of the trailer section of the show, which was something I was very unsure about when I when I originally included it in the show. Um, yeah, due to the popularity of that section, I decided it was about time that you were all able to see the trailers that, that I was talking about, as well as just hear me commenting on them. Um, so I'm thrilled to announce, for those of you who haven't discovered it already, uh, Trailer Tracks, which is the all-new Adventures in VHS YouTube channel. Um, so each episode, I'll be uploading a video of the trailers that play before the film I'm reviewing, um, and uh, that will be along with my audio track, where I get to see and experience them for the first time and take you through them. Um, so yeah, I've, I've kicked the channel off by going back and adding the trailer tracks for the first four episodes. So for Creepazoids and um, Class of Nuke and High, all those, film, all those um, trailer tracks are up there now with the audio over the top of them. And uh, as you hear this, the trailers for the Coca-Cola Kid tape uh, are also up. So if you do like what you hear in that section and you actually want to see it, uh, you just need to head to www.youtube.com slash adventures in VHS uh, where I have got you covered. If you want to follow me on Facebook or Twitter or even Instagram where I regularly post uh, images and comments about my, my latest VHS finds, you can do so. Um, probably the easiest way to do that is if you go over to filmrants.co.uk, which is my website, um, if you just take a look down the right hand side of the home page you will find all the links you need. Uh, there's a link to the uh, the FilmRant Facebook page, uh, there's a link to my uh, FilmRant Twitter account, uh, there's also a link, there's also images from my Instagram account so you can just click on those and uh, follow me there and, uh, and all that lovely good stuff so uh, so yeah adventures in vhs the book that is so far only a third written is now a multi-platform transmedia experience so uh, yeah so get involved and don't forget to like comment and share and all that other good stuff uh, anyway i've wasted enough of your time with this long ass intro so let's get cracking prepare to adjust your tracking as after this short break uh, we'll hear the first of your VHS memories and then we'll start to take a look at our film of the month which this month is The Coca-Cola Kid Alright, I'm here with Bill Byforce and Mr. Chris to tell you a little bit about Outside the Cinema Alright, Reverend Scott, take uh, us to church uh, What can we expect to find from a typical show? Two hours of just random blabber <laughs> Uh, is there anyone's coattails you rode in on to popularity? I'm the guy that f***ing burns the coattails and then pisses on them. You review all these exploitation, <laughs> horror, comedy, cult, and often all-around terrible movies. You must have a strong driving force that keeps you going. Ego! <laughs> I don't know if I've heard you say that before. Uh, yeah, I've been saying that for a while. Really? I have been saying that for a while. Also, I'm high on smack. Well, it's definitely working for you guys. Yeah. People are coming out in droves to support you on iTunes. We just the other day got a, a, a one-star review on iTunes. Well, that is one <laughs> That is one star too many. Let me tell you. The worst f***ing piece of shit I've ever heard. This has been great, guys. Thanks, Scott. Oh, that was good. Oh, he's got you crying over there. Uh, I'm good for the rest of the year. Nice. That was too much. So, once again, in no particular order at this stage, the first VHS memory comes from Don, who uh, many of us will know as Leather Jacket Buddha. Hi, Don. I was reading comics since I can remember, and art played a major role in my life. 
For instance, outside of reading the regular DC and Marvel fair, I'd, unbeknownst to my folks, sneak in there the amazing art of Mobius and company in heavy metal. So when I went into the video store and went right to the horror section, the art is what would grab me. My earliest memories were of grabbing boxes with outlandish, gruesome and gory visuals to bring home and watch. Like you, Noel, but with the exception of being able to watch little creature movies. I could watch anything but sex on the screen. Some snuck in there like Extro and The Tomb and, well, a ton of others, but Mom was there to fast forward or tell me to leave the room. So my memories lay upon films such as Alien Prey, Dead Pit, Anthropophagus, to name just a few, where I watched them and holy shit, there were terrible movies. Boring as hell and I learned fast never to judge a book by its cover. But films like The Deadly Spawn, Fright Night, Zombie, Gates of Hell, or, well, I could go on forever, many titles offered me VHS awesomeness. They inspired me to really want to become an illustrator and so much effort was put into a lot of them that even if the film blew, I was honoured to have the box on my shelf. In of the damned, the video dead, etc, etc, the floating heads covers of today are vomit inducing and I thank God for Arrow video releases for bringing back the lost art. VHS memory number two comes from Martin Cook. I've been collecting VHS for the past few years here in Australia. We have some unique artwork here and a high watermark for artwork has always been Roadshow Home Video. I have many early memories of VHS with American Werewolf in London possibly being my first. I've been hooked on horror and movies in general ever since. My father influenced my early viewing by recording films off the TV in the early 80s. Things such as The Freak Maker and later more mainstream stuff such as Grease. And I also developed an obsession for the Rocky Horror Picture Show from an early age. Under the Rainbow, Jason and the Argonauts, and The Incredible Shrinking Woman were also notable early memories. VHS memory number three comes from Mark Wall. I've got a bit of a love-hate relationship with VHS. I was born in 84, so was thrown straight into the VHS boom, and with both my dad and granddad owning video shops, Dolly Video and Bryant's Video respectively, I had access to pretty much any film I wanted. I used to love spending days in my dad's shop and I can still smell the dusty VHS cases when I close my eyes. It was a great time to be a film fan and it really got me hooked from an early age. I would spend hours walking up and down the three aisles in his small corner shop and pick out my favourites to watch on his little 15 inch CRT behind the counter with top loading player. From about the age of 10 we were allowed to take home pretty much whatever we liked within reason and would pick up a new movie nearly every night of the week. My sister would gravitate towards the fantasy and cartoon movies, and I would be mesmerised by the horror section. The boxes were amazing and all in really good condition, as these ones never got lent out to the customers. I still have my pre-cert copy of The Evil Dead from those days, which I've nearly worn out from how many times I would just rewind it and start from the beginning on the same day. It still remains my favourite film of all time and has inspired me to do some of my own short film work. Disaster struck for both my dad and granddad when a huge blockbusters opened in the 90s just down the road from their shops. They still had their loyal customers and tried to keep up by branching out into Sega Mega Drive games etc. But eventually, all their stock had to be sold off and the shutters were pulled down on Dolly Video for good. I think it's now a greengrocer's or something, but I don't think I could visit the place again. Too many good memories destroyed by blockbusters. This is when I fell out of love with VHS and movies in general. I'd still watch films we had salvaged from the shop, but apart from visits to the cinema, we wouldn't really watch new movies released on VHS. 
A shiny disc called DVD pulled me out of this rut and gave me a new thing to start collecting. Slowly all my tapes got replaced with DVDs and I'm now on close to a thousand, which is more than I could have ever had on VHS due to space. Now my DVDs are slowly getting replaced by blue and the process has started all over again. I would love to go back to start collecting VHS again, but money and space prevent this. My evil dead tape still takes pride of place on the shelf though, and even though I don't own a video player anymore, it brings back some great memories. So Duzan Makaviev isn't exactly the first name you're going to come up against when you're thinking about or seeking out disposable 1980s straight-to-video movies. Uh, in fact, this is a director that's actually considered quite an important contributor to uh, Yugoslavian cinema, having created a number of films that are thought to be deeply representative of his country's uh, historical, political and cultural history. Um, he has a background in documentary filmmaking and had three critically acclaimed features that kicked off his career. Uh, he's been compared to legendary names like Jean-Luc Godard and is often praised for his ability to, to combine politics with experimental filmmaking technique and extremely provocative ideas. His perhaps most celebrated work is 1971's WR, Mysteries of the Organism, uh, which is one part documentary looking at the work of psychoanalyst William Reich and one part fictional study of sexual repression. Um, the film was massively controversial uh, when it came out. It was very quickly banned in Yugoslavia uh, shortly after it was released. Uh, but has since then come to be sort of celebrated in, in the art house world and in 2007 uh, it was added to the uh, the Criterion collection of DVDs so there's a, a loving restoration of it out there if you wanted to check that out. Um, his other critical successes have included 1974's Sweet Movie uh, which again focuses on sexual psychotherapy as a discussion point for the socialist structures of Yugoslavia and again this was deemed too violent and sex sexually explicit for public consumption and it was cut to ribbons when it was released all over the world um, so yeah in terms of mainstream success uh, the director once again tackled themes of politics and sexual liberation and repression in uh, 1981's Montenegro uh, which tells the story of a housewife who's bored with her life and, and takes up with a bunch of uh, bohemian types in a bid to make make things more exciting. Um, but in 1985, um, Makeviev would make his second international co-production with the film we're looking at, which is The Coca-Cola Kid, uh, which stars Eric Roberts as a Coca-Cola executive with supposedly unorthodox methods of improving sales and troubling alien markets for the uber brand um, so here he's sent over to australia to shake up its sydney-based headquarters in a, a kind of reverse crocodile dundee type fish out of water type manner um, the director had initially and very interestingly intended the film to be a much more um, experimental piece which is seemingly more typical of his uh, of his work 
Um, and the, originally it was planned to use a series of international multilingual Coke commercials that would run throughout the film and act as kind of a narrative framework for the fictional elements of the plot. Um, unfortunately, that idea was scrapped, um, but the presence of the brand itself um, really remained more than prominent. It, it exploding all over the scene and all over the packaging um, in almost uh, every scene. Um, what is strangest of all, though, um, is that despite all of this, the film has absolutely no connection or seemingly cooperation with the Coca-Cola company. Um, in fact, before the film, we're actually given a title card that explains very clearly that the corporation had nothing to do with it. Um, bizarrely, though, each textual mention of Coca-Cola and the Coca-Cola company uses the trademark logo rather than just uh, using the words Coca-Cola themselves. Um, without knowing the absolute truth behind Coke's involvement or non-involvement in this film, it's almost as if the filmmakers were kind of daring them to sue them. Um, anyway, it's a strange thing to open a film with, and uh, I'm guessing that you want to see it, yeah? Well, uh, if you've got a smartphone or a computer to hand, I've got you covered. Uh, if you want to see that, that screenshot of, uh, of that, if you just go to... Uh, www.filmrant.co.uk slash coca-cola all one word uh, then uh, you can see it in all its its uh, its full glory so uh, don't say I don't look after you um, so apparently there were major fallouts between the cast uh, during the filming of this, uh, this particular movie um, it was by all accounts a troubled production um, and while I don't know to whom those rumours refer, I'm guessing it was probably the leads of Greta Scarchi and Eric Roberts, uh, as it's fair to say that they're not the most typical on-screen romance I've ever seen in my life, uh, but I'll talk a little bit more about that later when I review the film. Um, and as you'll hear when I take you through the, f the sleeve, um, this is a film that's very much sold on its eroticism. Um, and while this could be one reason why it, we never rented it when I was a kid, I'm inclined to believe that it probably just never appealed to my parents as, as something that they wanted to see. From my perspective, though, I always remember being curious about the Coca-Cola kid, and the main reason for this was just that the branding of Coke was such a massively cool and important thing to me back then. Um, it seemed to be to, to absolutely everyone. Aside from the fact that there was no way in hell I'd ever be seen uh, with knockoff supermarket cola uh, for fear of being branded some sort of pauper, it was just that the Coca-Cola logo, and indeed the Pepsi logo, uh, were almost like a fashion brand back then. Um, and I remember teaching myself to draw the Coca-Cola logo perfectly from memory. Why, I couldn't tell you. Um, but it was it was a talent that won me a few fans in in junior school, and you know for some re for some bizarre reason I even remember drawing it on a girl's exercise book for her one time because I was such a fucking pimp apparently. Um, so yeah, Coca Cola was massively important. So I was always intrigued about this film. We never saw it. Um, to my mind, it was 
um, you know, my perceptions of the film were quite incorrectly. It seems that it was about a young bloke who loved Coca-Cola and was a total player when it came to women. Um, a little bit like me, apparently. Um, so now, some 27 years later, I was keen to see what it was actually all about. Um, and where better place to start than by looking at the uh, the original cover, which I stared at so many times back in 1985-86. Uh, and this is for the UK release of the Coca-Cola Kid on Palace Video. Uh, so after a few more of your VHS memories we will take a look at the sleeve for said VHS tape VHS memory number 4 comes from Mark in the Republic of Ireland I loved your recent podcast about Ghoulies, a film which I would have seen back in the 80s on VHS, but it's something which has popped right out of the back of my mind, so I think I need a revisit. Just seeing the cover again brought back memories of me and my mates renting films like that from the local video shop on a Saturday afternoon. I remember when my dad first came home with the video system one Christmas, surprised us all. I can't remember the first film we rented, but one day, I must have been about 10, I came home with Porky's. My dad flipped, marched back to the video store, and let's just say he wasn't best pleased with the guy working in the shop. Can't blame a ten-year-old for trying though, eh? I'd say most of my rentals as a kid were with my mates and generally martial arts films, stuff like Best of the Best or Early Van Damme. Probably led to us trying a few kung fu moves on each other, which probably ended with someone in tears. VHS memory number five comes from Luke Butson of the Movie Stakeout podcast. Hi, Luke. After listening to the last ghoulerific episode, I learned we share the same fear of cover artwork, that of dolls. Freak the living bejesus out of me and I've still yet to watch it. Maybe it's time to follow your lead, man up and watch that bitch. The video me and my cousins would always be drawn to and rented out all the time is Garbage Pale Kids the movie. Must have been a love for the stickers, because the film, by all memories, was disturbing and probably much worse than Dolls. Been back collecting VHS for over a year now, and I'm loving the thrill of the hunt. Listening to your show and making notes of the films to check out too. Now I've found you, I never want to let you go. VHS memory number six comes from Jonathan Hinson, and is an audio memory, so enjoy. How's it going, Noel? This is Jonathan from the southern state of North Carolina, or jhenson 77 on Twitter. Um, I tell you, man, the show's getting better every episode, and it's quickly becoming my favorite podcast, uh, mainly due to the podcast subject matter, VHS. Um, I wanted to chime in real quick on my favorite VHS memory. Um, when I was 11 years old, my dad had a good friend who owned a furniture and appliance store and my dad being a school teacher uh, would help him out uh, during the summer on service calls and appliance runs 
uh, installations, that kind of thing. And this particular summer, um, I started going up to the appliance shop with my dad. My dad would run the service calls and I would set up at the shop. Um, his friend uh, had a kid my age and we would pass the time away by watching movies. And what better place to watch a movie in than in a shop who sold large screen TVs and uh, at the time state of the art VCRs. So uh, this particular summer, um, I remember uh, they opened a movie rental shop right behind the store, Ace Video Rental. It's been long uh, since shut down now, uh, but uh, we would hit that store every day uh, during the summer, uh, weekdays, while my dad worked, and just rent tons of movie out of the store, take it back uh, to the appliance store, and just sit there all day watching movies and eating junk food and fast food and whatever. And uh, we quickly learned the art of piracy. Had no idea what that word meant at the time, but we found out uh, from our older uh, cousins that you could plug uh, two VCRs together and record uh, the tapes that we rented, at least the ones that weren't protected by uh, macrovision. So I have two uh, tapes uh, still today in my possession at my house that uh, were my two favorite uh, VHS tapes from my childhood. I'm surprised they still work. Uh, one of the tapes uh, had Goonies, Labyrinth, and Return of the Jedi. And uh, Return of the Jedi was my first uh, exposure to Star Wars. Obviously, uh, I quickly uh, found uh, A New Hope in Empire Strikes Back. But um, that tape got a lot of rotation. That wasn't my favorite one. My favorite one was the second uh, TDK tape. Uh, this particular tape had Legend, uh, yeah, the one with Tom Cruise, Transformers the movie, still the best Transformers movie to date, and my personal favorite uh, <laughs> movie from my childhood, Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure. I know Bill and Ted is a <laughs> stupid, silly movie. But to an 11-year-old kid, to me, um, it changed my life, and I don't mind saying that. Uh, that movie uh, got me into just loving music. I play the guitar now. I started playing the guitar when I was 12, mainly because I played air guitar so much to that film. Um, it, it made me realize how important a soundtrack was to a movie. I mean, I would must have played that movie uh, 20 to 30 times in a span of like two to three years uh, up until my mid-teens I just probably watched that movie it seemed what seemed like once a week probably more like once a month but I had the movie memorized front to back um, and and again like I said before um, it, it made me fall in love with music um, I already came from a music family, but it, it, it made me pick up a guitar and learn to play, which I still do today. Um, just just a great movie. Um, I still love it. I know it's nostalgia. Um, I just recently heard that it's being released on Blu-ray in November. Um, can't wait for it. I've, I've sent shown this movie to um, my kids. Um, they like it. Uh, obviously, they have a different sensibility growing up uh, 
the time they're growing up in, but I just love every time I revisit this movie, uh, as, as stupid as the movie is. Um, but again, um, just great memories of that summer and uh, you know, uh, setting up at the store, just gorging ourselves on, on, on movies and, and watching this movie you know, at least a couple times a week that particular summer. Um, a side note, I do remember the, the first two movies I bought with my own money um, was uh, Alfred Hitchcock's The Birds and Rear Window. Um, and I bought them because my dad, of all people, recommended them to me. And obviously, it, that was it for me. I fell in love with the film and uh, Alfred Hitchcock, and, and that was my introduction to horror, uh, which now is my favorite genre of film. But anyway, I've been running too long. I can see now I'm over five minutes, but I uh, just wanted to share that with you guys and uh, just, man, keep the shows coming. I can't get enough of them. Uh, I, I know that they're once a month, but uh, I, I wish I wish I could have more of them. But anyway, um, keep it up and see you, man. So let's take a look at the videotape itself. I hold in my hands the uh, original Palace Video uh, copy of the Coca-Cola Kid from 1985, and um, it's a lovely piece of uh, of artwork. Actually, if uh, it's obviously it's completely loaded with branding for uh, for coca-cola so just to start by taking a look at the uh, the front cover um, it has the coca-cola kid in big coca-cola style writing I have seen other releases of this that do not have uh, have it written in the coca-cola writing they have it written in a different font which I think is probably a, uh, a legal issue um, and it's a bright red and white color uh, it's a, a bright red and white cover i should say the actual um box is a big white plastic uh, puffy cover um and uh, yeah just to look at the actual front cover then uh, sex is the cure for almost anything dot 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 it's the real thing uh, and then the coca-cola kid as i say in that coca-cola font uh, across a giant red and white background with the uh, the coca-cola swoosh i want to say uh, i know that's the nike uh, branding but what's it called it's called something ridiculous like the the something ribbon uh, i don't know the ribbon of dreams or some bullshit like that I, you know the, the the sort of the line that grows across the coca-cola can um which looking a little bit closely that the white line goes across the front of the the sleeve and then there's a bunch of tiny little coca-cola logos inside that that actually say the coca-cola kid coca-cola kid coca-cola kid in in tiny 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 little letters so you know the the coca-cola brand i feel like i'm saying coca-cola a few too many times but that brand is just all over the place here um 
Sex is the cure for almost anything. It's the real thing, as I say. And then there is a, a horribly, um, a horribly cut out um, image of Eric Roberts on top of Greta Scacchi. Uh She's kissing him on the chin. He's looking away like he's thinking about other things. And in his hand, what's he holding? A bottle of Coke. That's right. Um, and then across the bottom, we've got Eric. It's written Eric Roberts and Greta Scacchi in a film by Dusan Makaviev. Um, there is a, um, let me have a look, I'm just checking to see if this is stuck on afterwards or, no, it appears to be, right, I mean, this is a post-certification, uh, tape, I did think maybe it was pre, no, no, obviously it's 1985, so no, it is, it's, excuse, it's a, um, it's a post-cert tape, so we have the BBFC logo on there, this one is branded 15, which is worrying uh, for a film supposedly so uh, packed with sex. Um, and looking at the spine, we have a picture of Greta Scacchi with her head in her hands in what appears to be a Santa uniform. And then the Coca-Cola kid, again in Coca-Cola, writing down the side and the BBFC logo. And at the very bottom, we've got a picture of Eric Roberts uh, and he's holding a, uh, a gently bubbling glass of Coca-Cola. Um moving on to the back now this is interesting because this is where the uh the selling of the film becomes really really clear um and and how they were trying to get people to pick up this take tape and uh, and take it home for the night um right across the top we've got uh three pull quotes the first one is from the sunday mirror and says sexual passion which makes sensual viewing the Sunday Mirror um, and then the next we've got uh, the Times which says the Coca-Cola kid is sheer pleasure uh, use of the word pleasure obviously there is, is very sexual uh, the next bit down we've got the Sunday Express which says mesmerising performances from its attractive stars um, so yeah it's it's being sold on sex quite clearly uh, then we've got four um, images on the back, one of which is a uh, a jeep being followed by a um, a bi-wing plane. Uh, I'm, I think that's what they're called. The next is uh, semi-naked Eric Roberts and Greta Scarchi in a Santa uniform and they're snogging. And the next image is uh, Eric Roberts again glaring at that fizzing glass of, uh, of Coca-Cola. And then just below that we have Greta Scarchi and Eric Roberts in the throes of passion. Um, and underneath that image of the throes of passion we have a quote from the Mail on Sunday which I actually put out on Instagram ages ago just because I was so taken with it um the mail on sunday says of this film such eroticism that an audience of monks would pant for more which makes this sound packed with sex um although actually that doesn't make sense such eroticism that an audience of monks would pant monks don't get to see that much sex so monks are probably uh, probably pant for more an episode of eastenders to be fair, so I'm not too sure that quote works now that I think about it. Um, underneath that, we've got the blurb for the film, which I'll read to you now. Uh, the world can never be free until every person drinks Coca-Cola. So says Becker, Eric Roberts, star of Pope of Greenwich... Uh, sorry, Eric Roberts, star of Pope of Greenwich Village and Star 80. Oh, yeah, he was in Star 80. I forgot about that. Um, 
Coca-Cola's chief troubleshooting whiz, whiz kid with a reputation for being tough, unorthodox and successful. But when he encounters a fiery independent soft drinks baron, Bill Kerr, star of Razorback, his bewitching hot-blooded daughter, Greta Scarche, star of Heat and Dust, and a waiter who mistakes him for a CIA agent, the real thing is the last thing on Becker's mind in this wild tale of confusion, explosion, and seduction. So, going off the back of that, it sounds like, yes, we knew this. Eric Roberts is a troubleshooting whiz kid for Coca-Cola. He encounters Bill Kerr's character, who has a hot-blooded daughter, and um, obviously something's going to happen between them two, and what we get is a wild tale of confusion, explosion, and seduction. Um, so, yeah, apart from that, we've got the, uh, the full credits underneath there. And then, interestingly, uh, in very tiny writing... Coca-Cola and Coke are registered trademarks which identify the same product of the Coca-Cola company. This film is a work of fiction. Neither the film, in capitals, nor its makers, in capitals, have any connection, in capitals, with the Coca-Cola company, in capitals, or any of its subsidiaries, in capitals, or affiliates, in capitals. The Coca-Cola company, in capitals, has not licensed, sponsored, or approved this film in capitals, in any way, in capitals. So, Coca-Cola making it very clear from the outset that this film is nothing to do with them. Um, so, you know, take from that what you will. I don't know how that will inform the film itself, if it will be negative towards Coke, if it will be positive towards Coke, um, but it will be interesting to find out. So, as I say, it's got the Palace, Vo Palace Video logo on one side, we've got the BBFC uh, 15 certificate on the other, and we are told that um, it is in colour of course and 98 minutes approximately now just before I pop this tape in to look at the trailers um, I should probably tell you about the box because it's fucking beautiful um, it is what is commonly referred to as a puffy box which basically just means it's a little bit kind of thicker and more sort of well puffy um, and it's plastic and it holds the uh, the VHS tape a lot more snugly um, than a traditional uh, than a traditional uh, case would um, it's white on the outside uh, and it's black on the inside and on the inside logo we have got a wonderful embossed palace video logo a really big massive embossed palace video logo uh, which is fantastic the tape itself carries the usual please rewind after use uh, sticker which tells me that it was uh, once a rental tape Somebody has etched onto it Star Video, so I'm assuming that that was the shop that it was originally uh, rented from. Um, and uh, across the label, we've got the Palace Video logo, the Coca-Cola Kid uh, logo, and a little notice to say, a, a gold um, sticker, in fact, that say, please note, tampering with the contents of this cassette will render the user liable to prosecution. Um, so stark warnings from the, uh, the Coca-Cola Kid. At this point then, I will pop in the tape and take a look at the trailers. Uh, you will notice that the, uh, the, the audio is probably going to be slightly different from what it has been in the past in the trailer section. That's because it has been recorded with the fact that um, there is now the trailer tracks video to go with it. It's been recorded with that in mind. Um, so, yeah, uh, have a listen to what I thought of the trailers. And then if you want to see the trailers themselves, head over to youtube.com slash adventures in VHS where you can do that. Thank you. 
VHS memory number seven comes from Matt Dykzol. Matt, apologies if I mispronounced your name. My experience with VHS was brief, but it still left a lasting impression. Growing up in Sydney, Australia, I struggled to get hold of the tapes I wanted when I was younger. In part due to my parents, but also in part due to my local video shop being very average. However, around 13, I made a school friend whose parents were absent a lot, which meant we could watch whatever the fuck we wanted. Many an afternoon and evening was spent browsing his local video shop for tapes. The added bonus being the girl who worked there was a babe and gave us a copy of Texas Chainsaw Massacre on recommendation. I sometimes think this mystery girl changed my life in a way, because that tape was the beginning of a very long obsession with horror movies. I can't even remember what she looked like. My memory has created a dream girl who spends all her time watching old videos and listening to punk while waiting for me to come back into her life, true romance style, run away with her, or not. VHS memory number eight comes from Ken Bates, Hi Ken. For me, the mom and pop video store was literally owned by my mom and pop. In 1984, my parents opened one of the first video rental shops in our area of southern Massachusetts. I'll never forget the gigantic cardboard box in the living room that contained the first 100 cassettes. I was six years old and I was in heaven. Star Wars, Indiana Jones, James Bond and all my other favourites at my disposal whenever I wanted them. Much like you, I've always been drawn to the scary and the forbidden, which meant that I intently studied the cover box for every horror film we carried. The actual films could never match the absolute horror I imagined from the two or three stills found on the back, and your aversion to the Ghoulies poster gave me a chuckle, as I remember being absolutely terrified of the Jaws poster hanging on the back wall. The image of the shark filled me with such dread, I had to slink over to it and touch the tooth just to see what would happen. Over the years, I went from being the precocious young boy giving customers unsolicited recommendations to eventually working behind the counter. Every weekend, I had nearly any movie you could imagine at my fingertips for free. Soon, my house became the place where you got to see the R-rated film your parents wouldn't let you watch. And it was not uncommon for my friends and I to have three to four tape film festivals on Saturday nights. I tried to watch everything in the store at least once, and watch the movies I liked over and over again. After 11 years, my parents sold the business. It was a sad day, not just for my life as a cinephile, but it seemed like my childhood was ending as well. VHS memory number nine comes from Matt Poacher, and Matt writes, I guess my experience of VHS is broadly similar to yours. I was a nipper in the 1980s and had fairly liberal parents and equally liberal local video shop owners, both of whom seemed more concerned about tits and gore than violence per se. And this basically meant that any Schwarzenegger, Van Damme, Stallone or shonky martial arts was fair game. My first proper shit myself inside out moment was at a friend's house with a nightmare in Elm Street. But at home, my biggest memories were watching No Retreat No Surrender, Commando, Cobra and especially First Blood. I guess now I've got some issues with the leery treatment of the violence in Vietnam and the slightly simplistic politics of the thing. But back then, I reacted more viscerally to it and I used to reenact the prison breakout scene up to and including the nicking of the motorbike and I reckon I could still bust someone's nose with my elbow. It stayed one of my favourite films, and ashamedly it's the only VHS tape I've kept hold of, a lovely big box X rental version. I've got nothing to play it on, but there's something in the blocky heft of the thing that's made me hang on to it.
Okay, so here we have the Palace video ident, as you can see. I have literally no idea at this point if there are any trailers on this tape, I should probably point that out. Before the main feature, Palace Video proudly presents a U trailer. That's not ideal, but let's see what we've got. Um, high production value, I looked at it. What is this? 1953, an incredible meeting took place. Um, is this actually a Marilyn Monroe biopic? Wait, oh, hang on a minute. This is Albert Einstein and Marilyn Monroe in the same film. What they learn really will tell you everything sure you need to know about life. If they ever met. Sex um, and the universe. Relatively speaking. Whoever is playing Marilyn Monroe, she looks great. And that's Tony Curtis. Everything else is of insignificance. Insignificance. Gary Busey, that's terrible. well, that was strange. This looks very old. Oh, this, what is this? This looks familiar. That's Matt Dillon. This looks really old. I'm guessing it's called Flamingo. Is Pink Flamingo, the Flamingo kid? Pink Flamingo, I don't know. She's too old for you, Jeff. She's too old. She looks about 16. I'd like to invite you to our house for dinner. You would? Come to think of it. Can I put your tip in your pack? He fell in love with a whole new world. So it looks like it's saying the 50s. It stars Matt Dillon, and he's got a very 50s face, so that's ideal. Looks very wholemeal, very inoffensive. Unless things are about to change in this particular trailer. It's the Flamingo Kid. And the reason I'm remembering that is because that scene was described to me when I was in school. Uh, the scene where this kid is going, while he's eating. That was described to me in detail uh, one day by one of my close mates, Andrew Gibson. And I've never forgotten that. It's just one of those weird little things that I've never forgotten. So yeah, this is definitely the Flamingo Kid. Spells what? We'll never forget. Jeffrey Willis walked in, a bright-eyed kid from Brooklyn. So it's very bright, it's very colourful. He's familiar. He's from Toys. He's from Short Circuit too. Um, yeah, it's very colourful. It's very bright. It's very actually. Look at this. It looks like fun. I can get on board with that. I'm going to put this on the list. Oh, for fuck's sake, the snowman. Um, right, well, we all know what the snowman is. Introduced by David Bowie. This is interesting. That winter brought the heaviest snow I've ever seen. The snow fell steadily all through the night. Wait a minute, David Bowie um, isn't in this, is he? I woke up, the room was filled with light and silence. And I knew then, it was to be a magical day. I don't remember a voiceover track in, in The Snowman. Wait, if there was a voiceover version with David Bowie, that would make it infinitely more watchable, I think. Maybe this is just one of those little oddities where there was a trailer put out on video with David Bowie doing an intro. I'm, I'm feel really sure that he wasn't 
in the version that I've seen, but then I haven't seen the, the snowman since I was a kid and it was on every fucking Christmas. One winter I made a really big snowman. He got the scarf on me. Oh, hello. You see? My scarf, baby. It's a real snowman. It was a real snowman. We're walking in the air. Can you remember sweet Betsy from Pine? Across the big mountain with her lover eyes. Right, let's... In June of 1901. Again, these are all very. These are all very Hollywoody trailers. There's nothing dirty on this tape. I mean, these all feel like films, you know, maybe with the exception of the snowman. These are all films that feel like they have high production value, were made in Hollywood, uh, or made by Hollywood, you know, big studio pictures. Um, there's nothing grimy um, on this particular trailer reel so far. Um, which makes me worry about the Coca-Cola kid a little bit, from being honest. It makes me think that it's going to be a little bit polished. I prefer my videos a bit dirty and a bit grimy. This looks boring. This particular criminal for some time now, and I know how cunning and dangerous he can be. And he looks familiar. Dangerous? That's not what I've heard. I'm not the man you think I am. So basically, this is a movie about an old man. I want you on that train. I'll go someplace. And a train. Throw him off my train. And a horse. And, we'll see. and some snow. You do believe me? It's difficult to get excited about this. I nice jumper though. Had a really nice mustache. The Grey Fox. The Grey Fox. I hope it's called the Grey Fox. Legend. Richard Farnsworth is the Grey Fox. The Grey Fox. Of course he is. That looks dull. <sighs> Don't really recognise any of the names there either. Music by the Chieftains. And then we're back with the Palace video logo. So a pretty lacklustre trailer reel, I think. The uh, the Snowman was a, a highlight, but only because of the presence of David Bowie's jumper. Um, and that's that. Welcome back to VHS Memories. We get underway with number 10 from Chris Ward, a.k.a. Horace Smith. Our local video shop back in the 80s was called Video Graphic. It was situated on the London Road, East Grinstead, Sussex, the town where I grew up. Like many shops of similar ilk, Video Graphic was small and dark, but packed to the gills with hundreds of titles, including those you've covered on the podcast. Tapes were £1 a night and £1.50 for new releases, with the usual fines incurred. Luckily, because I was young, I was usually let off the fines. My parents were pretty liberal, and as long as the box didn't have any obvious sex scenes on it, I was pretty much free to rent what I wanted. I do remember my mum saying not to rent Hellraiser, but my older sister rented it the following week so I got to see it. Ironically, I was allowed to watch A Nightmare on Elm Street in 1985 when I was 8 or 9, but Hellraiser when I was 11 was a no-no. I think the first titles we rented were Police Academy and Beverly Hills Cop back in 85. 
and once my love for the horror kicked in, Videographic became my babysitter for several school holidays, where I could spend hours studying the various cover art masterpieces. Several titles were rented numerous times, including Demons, Rocky 3, Ghoulies, Class of Newcomb High, Return of the Living Dead, Nightmare on Elm Street 2, Amityville 2, The Blues Brothers, The Evil Dead, Ninja 3, The Domination, Rambo 3, etc. But unfortunately, Videographic closed down in around 1990 or 1991. But before they sold off their stock, I managed to buy many of those titles that I probably paid for already in rental fees. The pride of my collection was probably Rocky 3 was the original 1982 Warner Brothers padded big box version. VHS memory number 11 comes from Samantha, aka Thunder Bay. And Samantha writes, One Christmas in the mid to late 80s, my grandparents finally saw the light. And in a proclamation that home video was not just a passing fad and a waste of money, they finally purchased their first VCR. As a treat to the rest of the family during the holiday, we were invited to our first casual family gathering, where we would eat, converse, watch a selection of newly purchased VHS tapes. The excitement was palpable the evening of Christmas Eve, and we all felt naughty in breaking our formal holiday tradition of wearing the most casual clothes and making homemade pasta for an entree. My grandmother also had a selection of non-holiday movies for us to watch, and it's important to note here that my grandmother always had the best worst taste in movies, which just made us love her all the more. Case in point, I can remember seeing pieces with her at the tender age of 12, and both of us just chuckling the entire time. Anyway, as we all settled in front of the console television with our plates of pasta heaped with marinara sauce and ground beef, my grandmother put in her first VHS selection, announcing that it was a remake of one of her favourite Vincent Price movies and looked interesting. As you probably guessed by now, my family and I spent the next two hours with our mouths gaping eyes as big as saucers and our stomachs churning as we watched Jeff Goldblum physically and disgustingly deteriorate into a fly in Cronenberg's interpretation of the classic film. Most families would probably have turned the movie off and quit eating, but the oddest thing happened. Once we all looked at each other and discovered we were in a state of repulsion, laughter spontaneously erupted among us, and we began to take bets on who'd be sick first. I can't say I've ever looked at pasta the same way since but I can tell you that this is one VHS experience that's legendary in my family. VHS memory number 12 comes from Steve Dixon, aka The Great SD. Thinking back to my earliest memories of VHS reminds me of watching one round at my pal Davy's house as a youngster. The film was Psycho 2 and I'd never really seen a horror before. I was probably about 9 or 10 years old and have never been so scared in my life at that point or since. I'm pretty sure, if my memory serves me correctly, that one of his older brothers had left the tape in his parents' fancy top-loading VHS recorder, so we thought we'd be tough and watch it. Still freaks me out seeing Perkins dressed up in that wig. It's not the most scary of films when you look back now by a long way, and as a hardened horror film fan these days, I wouldn't like to see it again, because I can't imagine it would scare me as much as it did back then. From the director of Montenegro, a new formula for comedy. G'day, ladies and gentlemen. The cabin area is now being sprayed by quarantine officers. Please ensure that you remain seated until the spraying is completed. Welcome to Australia. Uh, my name is Becker, Atlanta, Georgia, USA. Can I offer you something? Coffee, tea? Mr. Becker. I'd like to work with you. 
But why don't we go into business together? Well, what the hell is he? A Pepsi man. If we got sex out of the way, we could relax. Listen, the sound of coke is dark and bubbly. Why our dark and bubbly liquid is so loved by all those Eskimos and other Canadians, we don't need to know. We need only just to bring it to the people. Every day, Coca-Cola makes new friends and new places. But still, the earth will not be truly free until Coke is available everywhere. Roberts and Greta Skaki in The Coca-Cola Kid, a film by Dujan Makaveyev from Cinecom International Films. So as we know from the sleeve and the accompanying blurb, The Coca-Cola Kid isn't necessarily about a dude who just likes coke and fucking bitches. Um, instead, it's about a corporate troubleshooter who finds himself out of his element when visiting the Australian headquarters of his company to help increase their flagging sales. We are led to believe via a fax that arrives at the Sydney headquarters just moments before he gets there that Eric Roberts's character Becker is something of an odd sort. Um, it's suggested that he will seem strange to his Aussie co-workers um, and he may even come across as a little bit overbearing but they need to work with him and do exactly what he says. Um, the strangeness or the, the, the suggestion of strangeness has already been depicted on screen. Uh, when the flight arrives on f foreign soil and the cabin crew are spraying everyone with insecticide uh, before they leave the plane, uh, which is something that I looked up online actually, and apparently this is something that still happens. I find that really difficult to believe. Um, but I, I don't know. There's, I've never been to Australia. Maybe it does. Maybe it doesn't. Uh, but yeah, they're they're sprayed with kind of insecticide for fear that they'll be carrying something uh, that may mess with the country's ecosystem. Um, so yeah, a process that apparently, unbelievably, still happens today. Uh, and Becca takes a, a very brief moment to just inhale the substance, uh, which sort of suggests that he's not quite all there. Um, we then go back over to the uh, the Sydney Coca-Cola headquarters um, where he arrives in the office of the boss there who has no idea that he's supposed to be there um, until um, a fax arrives in his hand. Ah, yes, it's all here. <coughs> you beat your assignment papers. 
I like a man who arrives before his printout. So for a while, the emphasis on character continues, uh, with Becca, Becca doing some bizarre Tai Chi uh, karate routine by the uh, the pool of his hotel. Uh, and it's at this point where he is first accosted by a concierge member who, who will pop up uh, later later on again. Um, and without wanting to, to exhaust words like bizarre and weird and strange too early in my review, it's probably the only way to describe this and the sequences that follow in the hotel um, with the aforementioned waiter slash busboy who, who seems to be convinced that Becker is a special agent of some description who's been sent over to Australia to help him out uh, with some mysterious political cause. Um, it is a very interesting part of the plot, and it's something that that comes back a little bit later on and is, is quite satisfying in, in the end. Uh, but it is very, very odd. Um, at different points during the story, uh, this character is sent away by Becker to, to go and get um, a large sums of money, and at one point he comes back with a gun with a revolver for him and stuff. It's, it's very odd, but um, it's very interesting. Uh, so meanwhile, at this early stage in the film, the incredibly young and live Eric Roberts, who looks scarily like his sister in uh, in certain points, appears to be channeling his inner Matthew McConaughey uh, before anyone knew who Math- Matthew McConaughey was. Um, and yeah, so you, you get you start to get a feel for who he is and where he's from and what he's about. Uh, one of the questions that I had going into the film, particularly after having seen that pre-credits message about Coca-Cola's supposed non-involvement, was just how the brand would be depicted in the film. Um, and I have to say, for the most part, uh, or at least the way the film starts, it's all relatively positive. Um, we have a couple of establishing shots of the Coca-Cola offices in Sydney, which are massively massively over branded so much so that they they have to be the real thing if you'll pardon the pun um and in fact i had a bit of a search around on the internet and the 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 coca-cola sydney headquarters looks a little bit more modern than what you see in the movie but you know obviously this was made in 84 85 um but it definitely looks similar to what we have here so what i'm wondering is it looks an awful lot like they used the outside of the Coca-Cola Sydney HQ, which must have required some sort of uh, some sort of permission from the Coca-Cola company. Um, but I'm wondering, uh, there are that the maybe did they actually use some of the insides of the offices for the scenes that take place there? Um, that must definitely have required some cooperate, cooperation with Coca-Cola, and it, it seems like that's what happened. Certainly from the the early scene that I mentioned. Um, where uh, where Becker arrives and and confronts the uh, the boss of the Sydney branch, um, but it's in these scenes in inside the uh, inside the Coca Cola building um, that quite interesting. We get some of the most pro Coke stuff. Uh, there's a couple of sequences where you get to see Becker uh, waxing lyrical about what the brand is and holding up a fizzing glass of the brown stuff to the camera. Um, and I must admit, it was at this point that I hit pause and pop next door to my uh, to my local Tesco to pick up a bottle of Coke. Now, I should say that whenever I watch a movie, I generally, particularly in the cinema, I do I do tend to have a bottle of Coke. It's just my little thing. That it's just one of those things that that I do. But the the thought hadn't actually crossed my mind while I was sat here at home watching this particular tape. Um, but after that particular scene, I just had the sudden realization that I needed one. 
Um, so yeah, the power of marketing, eh? Listen, the sound of coke. Hmm. Dark and bubbly. Why our dark and bubbly liquid is so loved by all those Eskimos and other Canadians, we don't need to know. We need only just to bring it to the people. So Greta Saatchi's character at this point is making it abundantly clear that she wants to fuck this guy. Um, and he is making it abundantly clear that he's not interested. Uh, in fact, it's here we start to see one of the most interesting components of the film shine through, which is the sheer frustration he has with her character. She basically stands in opposition to everything that he is about. Uh, she's she's kind of a, a free spirit who takes her shoes off in the office and, and sits cross-legged on chairs. She has marital problems with an estranged husband who visits the, the office drunk. Uh, she has a daughter. Um, she's supposedly a single mum. She has a daughter, who, a young daughter, who just kind of wanders into the, the building and, and wanders into the photocopying room unauthorised. Um, so Sachi's character has baggage. Um, she has lots of baggage and, and Becca hates her for it. Um, one thing he does fall in love with, though, um, at first is uh, the strangeness of Australia uh, and it starts to emerge that what he wants for the brand is something that, Austra- that, that, that celebrates the true Australian sound and he finds it while wandering about the outside of the building and stumbling upon uh, an authentic looking Aboriginal mis- musician who's on the streets playing a didgeridoo. Uh, but of course, hilariously, this particular native, uh, when he approaches him by saying, Hi, I'd like to use you for such and such, um, hilariously, the, the native um, reveals that he has an agent and a card and he speaks English perfectly well. Um, so he offers Becca his card um, when he registers, registers an interest in his didgeridoo playing. At this point, it you're really kind of getting a feeling for maybe Becker isn't that terrifying at all and in fact he's quite charming and he's rather interesting as a character there's stuff going on with him um, that makes you want to know more about him he is quite mysterious Um, this is despite the fact that that Eric Roberts himself has far from thrilling line delivery and the script that he's working with is nothing particularly mind-blowing um so yeah you start to come around to him a little bit and it seems to come across that potentially what's going on here is the setup of the film is we're in australia and we're expecting the arrival of somebody who is strange and not of this culture um and then when he actually gets there it's him that that feels sort of out of his element um and quite rightly so um, you know, it's not him that's the strange one, it's Australia that's the strange one. Uh, because, you know, obviously this is an American film, but it's set in Australia. So it has that weird sort of duality going on. Um, when you see him hit his stride, though, when you see Car- uh, Becker's character hit his stride, it, it really is in the, the corridors of the office and in the, the, the uh, projection room of the office as well. Um, one scene where we're back in there, uh, we find ourselves checking out some incredible and, and at that time non-existent Google Maps style software 
that's able to show us exactly where Coca-Cola has a presence right across Australia, along with detailed information about how many churches there are in every one of these areas, how many supermarkets there are, how many cemeteries there are, and, and all the homes across every square inch of the place. Um, and Becca is horrified to see that the guy running the system, um, this this Google Maps projection system, is wearing a Pepsi t-shirt. Uh, but he's then told that this is just typical Australian humour that he'll never understand. Have you seen the projections? The guy is wearing a fucking t-shirt. <laughs> well, I wouldn't worry about it. He's just having his own. It's Australian humour. It's product as laws is what it is, Frank. Oh, come off it, Becca. Oh, look at it this way. There's probably a guy over at Pepsi wearing one of our T-shirts. And he called me China. Now, why in the hell would he call me China? Oh, I don't know. Maybe it's just squinty eyes. So, yeah, one of the big problems with the Coca-Cola kid, I will say, is how the characters seem to change throughout, especially that of Becca. Um... As I have touched upon, when the film opens, he seems kind of strange and terrifying. And then he turns into something that's just maybe a control freak who doesn't like disorder or change. Then he displays his sort of free-spirited side when he wants to kind of embrace Australian culture. And then he shifts again later and he becomes this sort of hard-bitten capitalist who's happy to crush the small businessman that's that's at the centre of the plot. Um, and he goes from being really nasty to to Greta Sarchi and you know sacking her for for seemingly no reason, even though he knows she's a single mother with problems. To then kind of being nice to her later and 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 obviously going where he ends up going with her. Elsewhere, we kind of see him awkwardly try and take down Greta Sarchi's ex-husband uh, when he um, when he piles into the office drunk one day. And it really is. We're really led to believe that um, that Becker is somebody who has no fighting skills. He's awkward and he's a little bit soft, and he doesn't want to fight. He doesn't want to get into anything with this guy. You know, it's almost like he doesn't want to mess up his suit. But then later on, um, when Becker is in this sort of territory where um, the uh, the local man has sort of ownership of all the fizzy drink sales. Um, He's he's t- he's he's chased down by uh, a, an armed man who's supposed to be this sort of dark lone ranger badass guy uh, who lives who virtually lives out in the bush who's been sent to to chase him out of town. We see Becca off cam. Well, we don't see it. It's off camera. But Becca apparently takes down this guy who's got a gun pointed at him and then hand delivers him. To uh, to the guy who, who who sent him after sent him after him and, and tries to tear off in his jeep. It's just pretty odd. Here's your boy. What can I do for you, sir? Nothing, I'm afraid. Yankee <laughs> bastard. Now another thing that needs to be addressed is uh, about 45 minutes into this film, I realised that there was something seriously missing that had been promised. The fact that this is seemingly a movie that's so erotic it would make monks pant for more, it seems strange that over three quarters of an hour into the film, nobody has so much as much as kissed each other. 
there's no there's well there's there's virtually no eroticism in this film at all there's a splash of nudity there's one particular scene involving Greta Scarchi obviously that was originally apparently cut out of the movie and I'm guessing might probably be cut out of the of the movie if if you picked up the DVD in today's pedo fearing world I would imagine that um that this has been cut out uh yeah there's a scene in in the shower that involves full frontal nudity for Sarchi, but also her young daughter, who's probably about, I don't know, nine years old, so it's a little bit strange. Um, I don't really know why it was included. I can certainly see why it was taken out. Um, And I'm not entirely sure how it ended up on this copy of the tape, given uh, and given a 15 rating. Although, you know, for for anybody who's been keeping track of the news in the UK, apparently paedophilia was all right in the 1970s. 70s and 80s. Um, I don't know. Um, it's it's strange, but there's a massive lack of eroticism in the film. About an hour into the movie, we do get a sex scene, uh, but it's about two minutes two minutes of footage that's cut together with other other elements of plot detail that are going on, and it's not incredibly sexy. There's a lot of you know, it's kind of soft focus and it's very beautifully lit, and there's uh, there's a somebody rips open a, a pillow or something and there's feathers everywhere it's it's erotic on a sort of like sky movies late night kind of uh, level um you know sky movies late night in the sort of early 90s is, is kind of that type of fair i don't know uh, for those people who are renting this movie expecting something along the lines of nine and a half weeks or wild orchid or they were expecting you know something very sexy i can imagine there was some level of disappointment um, unless that person happened to be Gary Glitter or Jimmy Savile. So one thing that does occur around this one-hour point, though, is the quite wonderful contribution that's made to the film by Neil Finn, who some people will know as one half of the brothers that front the uh, the band Crowded House. Yeah, he appears uh, in the film itself as one of the session musicians who are brought in to deliver their version of a of a coke song that incorporates the Australian sound that Beck has been trying to capture. So this band are brought into a recording studio, and there's a really nice scene in that recording studio um, that sort of involves a little bit of music and a little bit of uh, cheeky banter. So uh, initially we get... A great attempt from uh, from Neil Finn to do his very best cheeky John Lennon type impression. Uh, which one of you is the leader? This guy. Looks like it's me. How you doing? Hi, I'm Philip. Philip, what is this? You sing for the Labour Party? Yeah, it was a washout. We did it just as a gig. It was, you know, it was well paid. We're not political. Well, I can't use your anti-American, Philip. We're not anti-American. We're very positive. We don't even eat meat. Peace. Andy Nuke? Not at all. We're the people of the sound. No opinions. We play for money. We're very good, sir. Use your ears, sir. But then after that, we get this glorious tune, which is accompanied by images of Coca-Cola trucks couriering uh, their way across the Australian desert like some Antipodean version of the, the traditional holidays are coming advert. Check this out. I'm going to leave it on in its uh, in its entirety because it's, it's really great. And when it comes back once or twice in the movie, it really puts a smile on your face.
So to sum up the Coca-Cola kid, it is not as sexy as I thought it was going to be. Um, it lives in a strange place between dark comedy and romance and drama. Um, it's a very weird film um, that's made only weirder by the um, by the use of the Coca-Cola branding, which just seems so strange. Um, especially seen as Coke is set up in a positive light, yet at the same time it's seen to be this corporate entity that crushes people and the branding is all over the place so it's like i don't know it feels maybe like coca-cola were on board with it and then they saw it and then they sort of backed away from it a little bit i couldn't be sure it's it's certainly it's an interesting piece of work and it has the weirdest ending um i i can i I, i've i can imagine it's there's something said at the end of the movie, and I don't know if it's a joke or what it is, but it's just such a weird, um, it's such a weird piece of text to end a movie on. Um, yeah, uh, there are positives. There's the sort of strange intensity between Eric Roberts and Greta Sarchi that sort of permeates every moment of their time on screen together. Um, so watching that intensity between them is great. Watching how much she frustrates him is great. And, and sort of watching her sort of impish charm, problematic problematic life inflect, inflict itself on him uh, and his sort of orderly existence is really great. Um, elsewhere, the the confused sort of hotel employee who thinks, he, who thinks Becker is a secret agent is a really nice addition. And it, it leads to a an interesting but equally bizarre end to the film. Um, but yeah, ultimately, the Coca-Cola Kid is a real oddity. Um, it is available on DVD if you want to check it out. Um, yeah, so a very strange movie. I don't know if I could recommend it because it's quite, it's quite, it's quite odd. Um, but that's my review of the Coca-Cola Kid. I'll be announcing the winner of the VHS Memories competition at the end of the show, but in the meantime we have three more entries to count down, the first of which is number 13 and comes from Jeff Barton, and Jeff writes, Now then, my first experience was with A Nightmare on Elm Street just weeks after it was launched on the format. I remember it came out theatrically quite some time before and that I'd wanted to see it quite badly. Alas, it was never meant to be because my dad forbade it, because the rating was far above anything I'd seen before. My elder brother went to see it at the drive-in and told me these grandiose stories about it for months and months after the fact. The things he told me at that age, I was probably about six or seven, really stuck in my brain. When the tape came out, I finally had a chance to see it as my brother had rented it and had a movie watching party that happened to include said title. He asked me if I wanted to see it, which of course I did. So I sat down and saw about 40 minutes of the film before I got scared out of my mind and left the room. For the next few days I was absolutely petrified and would refuse to go anywhere near the TV or any room besides my own. 
It got bad enough to the point that my brother finally coaxed me out of my room with the promise that all is fine and nothing could possibly hurt me. Well, that wasn't exactly the case, as he proceeded to try and break into my room, and here's the kicker to the entire story. To further scar me for life, he had a brown fedora that my dad gave him, and a bunch of butter knives taped to his fingers. Needless to say, this is single-handedly the most terrifying thing I have ever experienced in my life at that time. VHS memory number 14 comes from Craig Hughes. Being from a small village on the east coast of Scotland, my earliest memories of VHS tapes began with a local spa shop, which had a small selection of rentals. The owners, knowing all of our parents, would rent you any tape as long as you had the family membership card with you. Whether a film was a U, PG, 15 or 18 certificate was really irrelevant. You could fill your boots with the latest, and in some cases not so latest films, and for such a wee shop it had a pretty decent selection. To this day I can still picture the gruesome back cover of Society alongside the newest Arnie release. Once we rented a film which looked ace, but for the first 20 minutes was a guy driving his truck while thinking about his horse. We returned that and got our money back, telling the owner that we couldn't get the tracking to sell. Due to the word of mouth from the older boys on the school playground, one of the must-see tapes of that time was the ultraviolet Robocop. I remember renting it one Saturday afternoon at the tender age of possibly 9 or 10, and to this day, as a fully grown man of 34, the warehouse scene where Murphy is killed by Clarence Bodica still makes me feel a little queasy. I totally connected with your recent Ghoulies podcast in which you explained that you'd never seen the film, but the poster was a huge part of your childhood. I myself had a similar thing with robot jocks. I had the poster for it hanging in my room for many years without actually having ever seen it. The poster was truly awesome. I would make a half-hearted attempt every now and again to go and track it down without any joy. And then, at the beginning of this year, came Netflix, and whilst browsing the selection I spotted it and fired it up for instant streaming. It was a horse shit and I had to switch it off after 20 minutes or so. Oh well, at least the poster was cool. But I think that was part of the appeal. Seeing all the cool box artwork and the latest posters on the wall and picking which film you wanted based on which one stood out the most. Now the Netflix thing brings me onto the current want it, need it now generation. Where everything is available at the push of a button for instant access in your house or in the middle of a field on your mobile device if you so desire and can be seen in glorious HD if your bandwidth will support it. Never will they know the joys of buggering about with the tracking on your machine for half an hour before you could watch the degraded picture quality of a hotly rented tape. The pain of having your favourite tape chewed up in the jaws of a hungry player. And never will they know the feeling of having a walk down to the local shop three times a day to see if the previous renter had brought back the only copy of Terminator 2 yet. And then cursing the bastard because he hadn't rewound it. VHS memory number 15 comes from Dangerous Jamie from the Gore Press Gorecast. Take it away, Jamie. What up, Noel? It's uh, Dangerous Jamie here. I'm just getting in touch to say that I fucking love the podcast. It's uh, swiftly, swiftly moved directly into my sort of top podcast that I sort of go to first before I go to the rest of them. Uh, so props on that. You're way up there with the uh, some of the other big guys. So that's cool. Um... Some VHS memories are, well, firstly, um, I've, I've only recently got back into uh, VHS. It was a thing that I did, it sort of actually, you timed your podcast really well, because it seems to come around at the exact same time. Uh, a guy that I work with was like, I've got a lot of old videos, do you want them? And I was like, well, yeah, obviously. So I got those, and there was like a lot of stuff that was taped from telly, and a few like crappy things, like uh, 
well, crappy things, but like regular things like Event Horizon and stuff like that. So, but it sort of kindled my, rekindled my love. Uh, so I put those next to like the 15 or so that I had left from um, the many, many moves that I've done. Some of the good stuff was there. I mean, I have the sisterhood and stuff like that. Um, but, uh, so it sort of re reignited my fire for the old format. So I've been out and about on eBay in uh, various shops around Manchester, as you know. We've been competing for the same the same uh, VHSs over the city. Um, but that's fine. I think you've got sneak, sneaked in and picked up some of the ones I wanted, and I may have done the same to you. But as we say, all is fair and love and buying second-hand VHS. Um, so, yeah, there's that. I mean, I'm really glad you covered Ghoulies. It was one of the first horror videos that I'd ever seen. Uh, my dad bought it for me. It was in my birthday stocking when I was about s maybe nine, ten. Um, and I loved it. I still love it now. I mean, I'm fully aware that it's a load of crap, but it's just that it's that film that I owned when I was a kid, and that, um, you can never take that away from me. Don't try, or I'll fight you all. Um, I'm really, really loving the show. Like I said, um, amazing that you got to interview uh, David Decato. I know that he's quite difficult to get hold of. Um, I mean, uh, the interview with Lloyd was great. Uh, so. Loving it. Uh, keep it up. Can't wait to read the book and all that stuff. But for now, uh, I will catch you later. Stay spooky. Bye. So you have been listening to Adventures in VHS episode five, and this show has gone on way longer than I intended. So um, I will keep this last part of the uh, the the podcast quite brief. Um, we do have a winner, and uh, that winner is Mr. Paul Watson, and. Um, as I say, there was an awful lot of entries, and I know you always hear this, but it really was difficult picking picking out a winner, um, especially with so many great entries. And, and and you know, I appreciate the effort that, that everybody went into, and and the lengthy audio stuff that we got and everything. It, it was all cracking. But the reason I picked Paul's out is it just had a lovely splash of everything. It had a little bit of uh, information about the uh, the the technology of his of his old video. Um, it had individual experiences of sort of certain films um, it, it, he talks a little bit about um, about covers and artwork and stuff like that and sort of explained how the the, the video shops were and how they smelt and felt and stuff like that um, and he also and this was probably the tipping point um, had a little memory there of uh, of the introduction of the the video recordings act of 1984 and and how that affected his local shop so I'm going to read this out now uh, but yes congratulations Paul drop me an email and um, we'll sort out your address and getting the uh, the package over to you and uh, yeah I'm going to read Paul's entry out now I can remember the summer of 1982 when my dad came home after work with the new addition to the family, our very own bundle of top-loading joy, the Ferguson 3V29. I only know which model it is now due to a family photo and the nearest match on eBay. I checked it last week. Anyway, every week thereafter, probably for three years to come, was the march to the nearest video shop. I could rent what I wanted, I was nearing 8 so it was mainly Spider-Man Strikes Back and Superman 2, but after much nagging, the incredible melting man. If they didn't have sex in, it was passed as okay by my parents, but they did say no to the Evil Dead and Driller Killer. Evil Dead came into my life when I was 13 when my friend lent me a copy. It did the job it was intended to do in scaring the shit out of me. Going back to 1983, I was given a copy of Driller Killer in the playground. 
and holding that thing in my school bag all day had me shitting myself over the possible consequences. I knew if I was caught, my parents would go fucking mental. I loved the independent video shops back in the early days, the video nasties with their gory covers, top shelf porn and video aroma. A heady mix of dirty homes, chip pans and cigarettes made the experience of renting tapes a strange, daunting and at times weird one. I was usually scared of the shop owners, they looked fucking hard and I could tell they didn't like me. I used to scan the boxes in the different shops and see where they'd move the freaky title boxes to. And the scariest video box for me was the thorny MI title, The Elephant Man. I remember my mother telling me that he was real and I feel ashamed now for asking, so that seemed to make the other titles more plausible. So obviously, my eight-year-old mind was disturbed beyond reason, and after watching ten of the video nasties at various friends' houses, my education was complete. Roll on 1984, and the local shops were raided. Some shut up and fucked off, while others shut for the day, and then when they reopened, they had little to no stock. Some of the shadier places stuck the 18-rated stickers that they'd been given over the video nasties when they suddenly resurfaced a few months later. So some shop owners stuck two fingers up at the law, and good on them. I remember some shops using black sugar paper over some of the nasty box art, and up until 1989, Cannibal Holocaust in our local garage still had the name chalked on black paper and was placed next to bed knobs and broomsticks. Next to that, there was the Island of Death original artwork with a Rewind Please sticker over the flating pistol bit. The 18 sticker had fallen off, but no one cared nor rented the tapes apart from my dad and I on the odd Saturday afternoon. I was once a big video collector, then went on to DVD, but have now eased off. I'm now 37, and VHS still holds great memories. Your show brings me back to what I loved about the format. So, congratulations again to Paul Watson. It was a cracking entry, and thanks again to everybody who uh, put in an entry. Again, very much appreciated. And I'm going to leave it there. That draws the uh, the episode to an end. Um, feedback it'd be great as always you can get me noel at filmrant.co.uk if you want to check out any of the other things i mentioned before the instagram facebook twitter or anything like that just go to filmrant.co.uk check down the side of it uh the side uh, sidebar and you'll see links to all everything you need there including the new youtube channel where you'll find the visuals for the trailer section that you heard a little bit earlier on um i'll be back um at the end of october beginning of november with another show and it will have an interview just uh, finalizing that at the moment um and until then thanks very much for listening